The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have had more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you, against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound." But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, McKinley. Um, My name is Ben. I'm on staff here at Restoration, and we're glad you're here um, this Sunday morning. If your New Year's resolution is to, to come to church, you have done it. Look at you, one for one. Um, if not, uh, why did you come? Why are you here? That's a joke. Um, so each uh, each year when we begin uh, and kick off, uh, we kind of have a sermon series that kind of helps shape and form and frame things we want to be true in our year. Implement and be a paradigm that we operate out of. And so it's January, the next three weeks at least, We'll look at this passage three times, the parable of the prodigal sons, not just the son, uh, as we explore all three characters in it, the the younger brother, 
uh, the older brother and the father. And so we'll look at kind of uh, Tim Keller has helped coin phrases to each one. And uh, so uh, this younger brother who we'll look at today is this irreligion, irreligious irreligiosity. Uh, the older brother, religion, it's a pejorative term. It's, it's punitive. It's, it's not a good term. Uh, next week, and the father, this gospel, how, how we really grab hold of the father's heart. Because the goal is not to be light, not like the younger brother, not like the older brother. The goal is to be shaped and formed by the heart of the father. And so that's, that's kind of the aim, the goal. We're letting you behind the curtain. Uh, as we look at Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal sons, uh, these next few weeks. And it's really helpful because it's how we shape and form our view of ourself, um, our view of others, our view of God, the way we let God in and, and let ourselves be viewed by God, the way we view all the good stuff we do and all the bad stuff we do. It helps frame how we look and see things. And so this morning, like I said, we'll look at this younger son, this, this younger brother, uh, this idea of irreligion. And so let's have a working definition of what irreligion is. And so irreligion is this, this idea of... Um, through control, trying to find control, and trying to find validation through disobedience. All right, through disobedience, through doing it your way, finding control, and having control of your life, and having, having this idea of validation in it. And so if that's kind of something that might mark you or, or might um, be something you gravitate toward or have an inkling to, uh, it's helpful, this story is, because you'll see the pathology of the heart, how the heart works. And if that's not what you're, how you're bent or kind of how you're wired, uh, one thing you should know, well, next week is coming for the older brother, but next thing you should know is that uh, no one um, outgrows the propensity and the potential of irreligiosity, of younger brotherness, of younger sonness. While it may not be our uh, posture, it's certainly our potential. And so as we come to this story, next three weeks, it's helpful to be shaped and formed uh, by what God is trying to tell us in it. And so we'll look at three things this morning as we look at this topic of irreligiosity. Uh, first, the right of irreligion, the right of irreligion. Second, the road of irreligion. And third, uh, the return from irreligion. The right, the road, the return. As we look at this um, story, this parable of Jesus, that it may be very familiar, it may be very new. Uh, let's go to a God who meets us and shapes us and forms us. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this very day, um, and you're you're um, you're the kind of God that we see in this story of this Father who delights and his sons and his children wildly different and as we look at it at first glance um, one not deserving at all and one it seems like completely deserving and yet Lord what you're after and this story is what you're after now in our lives and it's our heart it's how we operate it's how we we build our lives around this thought of seeking control and validation and so this very day, would, would we encounter this story in this younger uh, son, this younger brother character, and not be marked with shame, but instead come to our senses just as he did. We pray this, Christ, because that's your hope and your vision and your story that you long for us to know. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, so this right of irreligion, the right of irreligion. 
uh, Jesus is uh, beginning his ministry and he's going out and he's healing people and he's having teachings and quickly uh, he finds opposition. So as he goes on and continues his ministry, what we see is that uh, these Pharisees, experts in the letter of the law, they start talking about this Jesus character. And they say, this Jesus character, uh, he dines with sinners and tax collectors and he welcomes them. And Jesus hears this. And then in Luke 15, he proceeds to tell them parables and stories, right? These, these tales of trying to get at the heart of something. Enter Luke 15, parable of the prodigal sons. He says, I, I hear you tell me I dine with sinners and tax collectors. Well, I've got a story for you. And that's what we hear. And in the story of the parable of the prodigal son or prodigal sons, it begins this way. It says in verse 11 and on, it says, there was a man who had two sons. Uh, the younger said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he, the father, divided his property between them, his older and, and younger sons. His younger son goes to his father and says, Hey, hey, dad, I, I want what's coming to me. I, I want this inheritance. I want my estate. I want what is due to me when you're dead. Let's fast track it because you're actually more valuable to me dead than alive. So let's, um, let's get that going uh, because I would love your stuff. I don't want you. The father says, okay. And he does it. And what happens is he gets, this younger son gets all these things. And then he goes and he leaves town and he goes off to a distant country, it says. Leaves the first train out of Dodge. And this was wild in that day because sonship and belonging was everything. Uh, both in, in the career with the, this trade that you learn from and you take on, you build. Uh, it's, it's everything for security and land and, and possessions and cattle. It's, it's everything. And what he's saying is, I'd rather be an orphan than belong to you and be here with you. I'm going to go out to a distant country. The story begins with an opening scene that's quick and, and, and direct of familial drama. And yet the question is, why did the younger son do it? Why does he go and say, I want your stuff. I don't want you. As the Bible Project would say, there's, there's not much you can't learn about the human condition that's not in the first three pages of the Bible, the first three chapters of the Bible. And so as we look at this uh, first three chapters of the Bible, we see in Genesis 3, this, this Adam and Eve, this temptation, this, this serpent coming to them and saying and whispering these things to them. And it says this, in Genesis 3, it says, uh, did God really say, did God really say you must not eat from, uh, from the tree in the garden? And the serpent says later on, you will not die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Adam and Eve are being whispered this lie that's so believable in that God's holding out on you. That God is deferring a right you have. And you have a right, and this good God is holding out on that right. Go take it. This God is saying, hey, I'm going to hold back. And Satan is saying, the only way you can get it is in your king, being a king and queen, gaining that power, that control, that validation through disobedience. Taking what is deferred and due to you in the very same tune is being sung to the heart of the younger brother. Because the younger brother is believing in his heart. He's saying, what if I did have everything? 
What if I did have everything I could have, uh, that, that nothing was deferred me, my wildest dreams come true? What if I have exactly what I want? Nothing is denied me. I have complete control. I call the shots. And the only thing standing between me and that fantasy world is my old man. I want your stuff, Dad. I don't want you. This fantasy that he listens to, that Adam and Eve listen to, and so often we listen to, it soothes some kind of emptiness or even a wound that offers and allows us unconditional control and contentment, validation, and unconditional love. We feel like there's a right to make choices and do as we see fit, and no one can stand in our way, be it a father and his stuff that we get, or be it a God who has given us everything. Around this whole entire chapter in this parable, Henry Nowen, this, this thinker and pastor and writer and many other things, wrote a book, and he, it's called The Return of the, of the Prodigal Son, and he says this in this book. He says, I'm the prodigal son every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. Why do I keep ignoring the place of true love and persist in looking for it elsewhere? Why do I keep leaving home where I am called a child of God, the beloved of my father? I'm constantly surprised at how I keep taking the gifts God has given me, my health, my intellectual and emotional gifts, and keep using them to impress people, receive affirmation and praise, and compete for rewards instead of developing them for the glory of God. Yes, I often carry them off to a distant country and put them in the service of an exploiting world that does not know their value. It's almost as if I want to prove to myself and to my world that I do not need God's love, that I can make a life on my own, that I want to be fully independent. Beneath it all is a great rebellion. The radical no to the Father's love. The unspoken curse, I wish you were dead. The prodigal son's no reflects Adam's original rebellion. This rejection of the God in whose love we work, we are created and by whose love we are sustained. It is the rebellion that places me outside the garden, out of the reach of the tree of life. It's the rebellion that makes me dissipate myself in a distant country. It's no new thing for us to run to a fantasy world that says, if only I had this, if only I had this right that is deferred me, if I had it, I'd know unconditional love. I'd know unconditional control. I would know unconditional contentment. The fantasy world in the mind of Adam and Eve and the mind of the younger son ruled them into get what they thought was deferred and due to them. So friends, what is your fantasy world? What does it sound like? What is the whisper of this distant country, the promise of a distant country, the, the potential of a distant country offered to you? Maybe a, a question that's diagnosing is, where do you feel denied? Because quickly your fantasy world will kick in of thinking, if I only had this, if this person was out of the way, if this person acted a certain way, then I would have everything I'd want. I have the right that I'm due. And East of Eden, a great book that I've never read because high schoolers don't read, uh, that John Steinbeck wrote. Indeed, most of man's vices are attempted shortcuts to love. 
the shortcut, the distant country offered the younger son was something that really is a shortcut to love, even as it's a vice. And that's exactly this, this right is what takes them on to the second idea, the second thought, this, this road of irreligion. He's on this road of irreligion that he goes from his father's home, his father's uh, land, his, his belongings, and he goes off to this distant country. And he goes off and it says this, it says, and there in this distant country, uh, he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that country and he, ha- he began to be in need. So he, hi- he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who set him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating and no one gave him anything. This journey he's taking from this father's home to this distant country, longing to, again, irreligion, uh, control and validation through disobedience. This road he's taking to this distant country checks every single box of lack. He's lacking everything. That he goes to this distant country and he squanders wealth and wild living, it says. Right? He's lacking, we'll, we'll call it morality. He's living crazy. So he's lacking morality. He, he's, he's spending every dime he has. He's lacking finances. Security. The safety net that he's just got, his father's estate. He, it says he's hiring himself out to feed pigs. He's lacking this distinction that he has culturally as a Jewish person. Right? The worst thing you can do is to feed swine in the eyes of first century Judaism. And it says he's hungry. He's lacking nutrition. And he wants to eat the pods these pigs eat, which means uh, it's these, these pods or these sweet things that they're substitutes for chocolate and, and sweets in that day. And, and there's no nutritional value in them whatsoever. They're, they're sweet to the tongue and nothing to the stomach. He thought, if, if I can just have that, it's a microcosm, really. And yet, also it says in there that people look at him and give him nothing. He's lacking dignity. He's being looked over. There's holistic degradation. He's lacking everything. He began with status and a purpose and esteem and dignity, and he's found himself being in company and having the diet of a pig. Now, the moral of this story is not be careful with your vices or else they'll lead you here. That, that's kind of a scared straight mentality. Um, it's, that, that, that tugs on fear more than it does on a, a better and greater love. Instead, I think what we can note here of this road of your religion that he's gone, this journey that he's gone from his father's house to being in the company of pigs, what we can probably articulate is that the road of your religion, right, control and, and invalidation through disobedience, this road of irreligion gives us exactly what we think will give life, independence, all the while makes us pay a cost we die from, isolation. We want independence. In your, in your, in your daydream, in your fantasy world, you want to be independent. You don't want to be tied down by constraints, and yet the cost of it is being isolated. And dying on the vine from isolation. Now, last uh, week, last Sunday, New Year's Eve, um, during nap time, I went by myself um, to go that afternoon uh, to Aldi, to get the grocery shop for um, the evening's festivities. So I went to Aldi and, and shopped, and I had, didn't eat lunch. 
And so I was really hungry. And so as I'm shopping and, and, and looking around, preparing for the evening and, and everything that will happen, I think to myself, hey, in January, I'm going to say no to a lot of stuff. I'm not going to eat sweets or bread or some drinks. And so I'm, I'm really, I want to make sure this is a trip that's um, a big blowout. It really goes for it. And so as I'm hungry, um, I go and I look for all the, a decadent dessert to fill my stomach because I'm very hungry and I got that sweet tooth. And so I look all around the store. Once I had that thought enter my head and I find um, the creme to the creme, I find the off-brand Swiss cake rolls. And so I put it in my cart and I check out at Aldi, which is no small thing. I go to my car, I pack everything up and I go pull out of the parking lot, go to the red light, stay at the red light. I look to my left, I look to my right, look forward. And with my right hand, I go and grab that cardboard carton of confectionery chow. And I grab that box of Swiss cake rolls and begin to inhale them. Because I know in January, in just a few hours, I'm not allowed to have it. And I'm all by myself. And I get exactly what I want. Being independent from everyone gave me a chance to ingest exactly what I craved. And yet I could not have been more isolated and alone as I did it. I got exactly what I wanted all by myself. The road of irreligion, the road of having what you want, when you want, how you want it, gives us exactly what we want, independence, and makes us pay the cost that we will die from, isolation. And it's what a psychiatrist, Kurt Thompson, says. He says, evil is intent on using isolation as a primary context. It wants to do its work and does its work well. Does this story of the prodigal son tell us don't do bad things? Well, yes, I mean, sure, but it's it's bigger, it's better, it's deeper. It says there's a great danger in being independent because of the great danger in being isolated. The destination of the road of irreligion is isolation. With every step this younger son took from the father, isolation is more and more as reality, and the same is true with us. In the name of independence, every step we take on that road, isolation is more and more a reality. More and more a thing that makes us and shapes us. And if you're anything like me, when I am most angry, fearful, when I'm most guilty and a loud head and a loud heart or, or shamed or frustrated, when I am those things at most is when I am most isolated. As a friend of mine said, don't, your head is like a bad neighborhood. Don't go there alone. Isolation is the thing in which we atrophy from. And yet, when we're eating this proverbial pig slop all by ourselves in isolation, when we're lying in the bed we've made in this irreligion, this disobedience, It's exactly where we need to be to be primed for returning back. This last idea, returning from irreligion. It it says in the story, it says he's eating this stuff. He's eating this pig slop. He's there in in this low of low, rock bottom. And it says all of a sudden, this younger son, it says he came to his senses. 
He came to his senses. Something awoke in him and reminded him, I should not normalize this. That isolation can't be my story because I remember something about this father that I had. My reality is something I don't want to be my reality anymore. And as Henry Nouwen, this, this writer said, he said, he was truly lost. And it was this complete lostness that brought him to his senses. He was shocked into awareness, awareness of his utter alienation and suddenly understood that he had embarked on the road to death. He knew that one more step in the direction he was going would take him to self-destruction. And it's that awareness was the smelling salt that brought him to his senses. He could see himself a little more clearly, see his situation a little more clearly, see his father a little more clearly. The biggest gift that had was given to the younger brother was not this big estate, but instead this big awareness of coming to his senses when he had nothing. This rock bottom, this cul-de-sac situation was a gift, not because it broke him, but because this cul-de-sac, this pig slop, uh, this degradation in the distant land was a gift because it broke his irreligion. Friends, rock bottom breaks, not us, but breaks this hope and this thought that maybe this disobedience gives me life. That's what it breaks. Because when it breaks that, that's when you begin to return back to this place of promise and of hope and of healing and of dignity. And his return to his father is just that. He sees a little more clearly enough to have this prepared speech where he says, Father, verse 18, hey, hey, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He says, hey, Dad, I, I know you are a good man. And because you're a good man, would you do to me a bad man a good thing? I'm not your son anymore. I've out-sinned my sonship. It's gone. I, I've killed it. I'm the one that has buried it by my choices. And yet, would you, out of your goodness, look at me in a way that's favorable to make me a hired servant? Because maybe being a hired servant for you is a little better and more dignifying than being the hired servant in the distant land. And obviously what we see is that his father rewrites this story. He comes with a prepared speech of, hey, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy. Kurt Thompson, this writer, that psychiatrist says, researchers have described shame as a feeling that is deeply associated with a person's sense of self, apart from any interactions with others. Guilt, on the other hand, emerges as a result of something I've done that negatively affects someone else. Guilt is something I feel because I've done something wrong. Shame is something I feel because I am bad. And yet the younger son checks both boxes. He says, I'm guilty. I have sinned. And he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm void of worth. I am marked with shame. Amid his shame and his guilt, he comes to his father. And what does the father do? He does not 
propel or establish or nail down that verdict the son puts on himself, but he wipes it to the side and pays a cost to himself of putting a new verdict upon his son. The verdict the son puts on himself is a non-player because of the verdict the father puts upon him. And the father restores him and reverses everything he looked for in that distant land, all in the way that he returned from that irreligion. In the distant land, he looked for connection and intimacy from a stranger's sexual kiss. And what does he find? His father's grace-filled kiss. He threw his father's wealth away on food and drink. And what does the father do? Throws him a party with food and drink. That in his poverty, people would not even look at him as he begged in a distant land. And here in his poverty, his father runs to him. When he thinks he's out, he's actually in. The beauty of returning from irreligion is not you have to clean yourself up. The beauty of returning from irreligion is that the Father sees your guilt and your shame, the things you've done and the things you think and know that you are, and he wipes it to the side and pays the cost of it in the person of Jesus and says, I'm putting upon you dignity that you forfeited long ago, but I long for you to know it and be shaped by it and let it be your reality. Because actually you once were lost and now you're found. The most beautiful part of irreligion is not making sure everything is cleaned up and you say sorry enough and you say sorry loud enough. The beauty of irreligion and returning from it is the fact that, Lord, I know something that is so true of me, my guilt and my shame. Would you make your story louder than it? Now, in two weeks, we'll talk about the gospel and the Father heavily. But what does it do to you to know, even amid your failures, your disobedience, your longing in your fantasy world for control and for validation and for unconditional love and unconditional contentment? To know that the Father sees not just what you do, but why you do it, and he still runs toward you. And he kills the fattened calf because he wants to do it, and he longs to do it, and it's a joy of him to do. That's the kind of God you return from even amid the mess of your life. And that's the God we come to now at this table. Let's pray. Lord, this very day, would you uh, would you come to us? If we're like the, the younger brother and we're just coming to our senses and stumbling back with a tail between our legs, would you, would we know and see the Father that runs and closes the distance between this shame and guilt-filled son? Lord, if we're, if we're still in far from you, would you awaken in us a reminder of who you are and help us come to our senses? Your goal is not to break us. Your goal is to break the way in which we see the good life and want want to shape us into your version of the good life. No matter who we are and how we are this morning, would you do just that? 
as we look at our failures, our disobedience, and have this story shape hope instead of perpetuate shame. We pray this all, Jesus, because you've walked out of the grave and we walk out with you. In your name, amen. Our disobedience, and have this story shape hope instead of perpetuate shame. We pray this all, Jesus, because you've walked out of the grave and we walk out with you. In your name, amen.